So Money Episode 128, John Acuff. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. How's your day going? Thanks so much for joining me. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We've got a fantastic guest today. Very, very excited to introduce to you John Acuff. He is the New York Times bestselling author of five books, including his most recent, Do Over, Rescue Monday, Reinvent Your Work, and Never Get Stuck. He's a well-known public speaker, social media expert, and an amazing writer whose blogs have been read by millions of fans. For years, John worked as a staff writer for well-known companies, including Home Depot, Bose, Staples, and Autotrader.com, where he helped tell their stories. Then he landed his dream job on the Dave Ramsey team as a full-time speaker and author and had, as he says, the three greatest years of his professional life. So what made him walk away from that job? We're going to find out. Also from our interview with John, the two greatest lessons for anyone who's trying to make the most of their career. And no, it's not, you know, to quit your career and, and start a business. There are actually some other lessons that can help you along the way. How he landed the opportunity to work alongside Dave Ramsey. I mean, how does one uh, get connected with the Dave Ramsey? He said that that relationship literally fast forwarded his career by 10 years. And the surprising life story that John and I share in common, this was something that I just discovered on the show through interviewing him, and it really put a smile on my face. And so I'm very excited to share with you our interview with John Acuff. John Acoff, welcome to So Money. A pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. You have a new book out, and uh, I have to say, I love the titles of your books, uh, starting with Start, Punch Fear in the Face, Escape Average, and Do Work That Matters. Check. Yes, I'd like to do all those things. Um, Quitter, Closing the Gap Between Your Day Job and Your Dream Job. And then more recently, Do Over, Rescue Monday, Reinvent Your Work, and Never Get Stuck. You said this book took you 16 years to write. Yeah, I, uh, that's the amount of time I've been working in corporate America. And it was a lot of these ideas are the kind of ideas that I don't want anybody else to take that long to learn. Um, because <laughs> well, thank I, you. Le- <laughs> I learned a lot of them the wrong way. And mm-hmm. I would love to save somebody a decade of their life if possible. Much of your work is uh, around this subject of work and, and work happiness and finding your career destiny. It's It never gets old, right? People continue to be in jobs that they absolutely hate or wish they were doing something more creative, more fulfilling. Um, as you have gone and, and you give a lot of, you give a lot of talks, you're on the speaking circuit, what do you find is the most repetitive, most constant yearning that people have who are in live, working in corporate America? Is it that they just want to become entrepreneurs or they just want to make their current existence a little more uh, meaningful and fulfilling? I think it's the, the quiet sense that it's easy to get stuck. Um, I think that there's definitely dramatic moments that happen where there's a, a layoff or you get fired or, or something like that. But I think it's how easy it is to get stuck. Um, I think that's what's curious. And 
culture is interesting right now because we have a culture that glorifies being an entrepreneur. And so I meet a lot of people in corporate America who feel like they can't chase a dream in a big company because so much of our conversation is, you know, you've got to start your own business tomorrow. This is a time like no other. You've got to do it. And my thing is, if 70% of Americans don't like their jobs, 100% of them aren't supposed to be small business owners. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what I like to talk to people about is, if that's what you're supposed to do, go do it. Like, go be passionate about it. But you can also do amazing things inside of big companies. That's not failure. There's a way to climb a really interesting ladder inside a big company. Um, But I think the majority of the people I talk to Um, There's certainly a handful of those who will say, I love my job. It's exactly where I want to be. But even those people can get stuck and complacent if they're not careful. Like I always say that the difference between um, complacent and comfortable is really small. And so one of my favorite stories was in the New York Times. um, They asked, why didn't Kodak create Instagram? Why didn't Polaroid create Mm -hmm. Instagram? Um, And it's because when a business starts, there's risk and innovation. But then if it goes well, you move from innovation mode to protection mode and you no longer innovate, and you get stuck. And so what I try to encourage people, wherever they are in kind of the career spectrum, is don't get stuck, and here's here's not here's how not to. Well, n- another reason not to get stuck is that if you're with a company long enough, and this is just my perspective, and it's a personal perspective, but if you're with a company long enough, uh, they will turn against you. It's like you will get kicked to the curb, or they will treat you badly. I find often that... We feel as though company employees sometimes feel very loyal to their companies. And I don't know what it's based on because the truth is, at the end of the day, the company that you work for, um, while they perhaps like you and they respect you, their focus is on the bottom line. And if, you know, uh, if they have to, if push comes to shove, they will give you a pink slip. And, and that seems like the biggest slap in the face. It's happened to me. And so you have to sort of, I don't know. It's it, it's a very weird relationship, employee-employer, wouldn't you say? It's a tension. It's definitely a tension because, you know, one of, one of the things I talk about a lot is that it's not your company's job for you to have a good job. It's your job. Ah, I like um, that. And it's not your company's job for you to love your job. It's your job. And so that's part of it. You have to be growing. You have to be learning. You have to be, you know, ready for that, what you said, that rogue wave where, they go, we love you. We think you're amazing, but we just, we're cutting this entire department. And that includes you. Yeah. I, I talked to a, a Best Buy employee and they had a manager of one of their departments that was amazing, took the store from like last in their market. And there were 40 stores in the market to number one. And he lost his job. And I said, well, why did he lose his job if he was so amazing? He said, well, they eliminated that position across the entire company. So it didn't matter if he was amazing. So you're right. Like, I think there is that tension of, you try to be loyal, you try to work hard, you try to give what you can give to that company, but you also, it's not failure to realize and recognize that, you know what, if there's a market disruption that, and they decide that at this level they don't need people, I'm going to lose my job. And it's not that they hate me, it's that this is part of being in a business. Yes, it's that, not personal. Yeah, there's stockholders, there's no part of the stockholder meeting where they go, How's Jim feeling though? Like, have we have we got a yeah. Jim's heart lately? And again, that's that's not because they're cold. It's because in order for them to have a company in the longest way possible, they have to make difficult decisions. Mm. And so I completely that's the tension to me. You have to be your biggest advocate. One of the best bits of advice I ever got early on in my career was that you're not going to get. You don't assume that your boss is going to recognize all your hard work and that sometimes you have to flash it in his face or put, you know, but in a nice, in sort of a tasteful way, you know, you don't want to 
be that person who's being obnoxious. But to, for example, I worked in a newsroom and I was producing pieces all the time. And um, it was easy for, you know, people don't know the, the hard work that goes behind shooting a piece and putting all the elements together and writing it and executing it. It can get lost in the, in all the other, you know, 300 pieces that are airing that week. So when your piece is airing, and it's, in, you know, you work in a newsroom, so it's airing all over, in every corner on every TV. You want to kind of like do a lap around the newsroom so people make the association. Oh, Farnoosh. Oh, and your piece is airing. Great job. And hopefully one of those people that recognizes that is your boss. But I remember uh, an older um, employee telling me whenever your piece is airing on television and you're in the office and it's airing in the office, you want to do a lap <laughs> around the office. And it's sort of a, an indirect way of just kind of getting yourself recognized. Um, just one example of, of how you have to sort of be aware of the fact that, you know, you got to be your bigger advocate. You are a personal advocate at work. Uh, that I think that's critical. Um, you know, I'm a, as an author, I, I've always said no one will care about your book like you'll care about your book. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a great thing. And so, just like you, I think that you have to remember you have multiple audiences at any job. Um, part of it, it for you, it was the viewing audience. There were people at home. What did they need to see? How did you need to communicate it? But then you had an internal audience too. And I think sometimes we forget that internal audience is every bit as important. So you taking a lap was deliberately putting some equity in, in that relationship. And you're right. It's not over promotional. I mean, you can certainly do it in a way that it, it alienates you to other employees. And so you have to be balanced with it, mm-hmm. but you can't wait for the boss to go, you know what? I'm slammed. I worked 80 hours this week, but now I'm going to go try to research what Farnoosh did really well this week. No, of, of course not. But that's why you get to go, okay, I did this project. I want, I can't wait for people to understand it or recognize it. I'm going to make it as easy as possible for them to understand what went into it, that I was involved in it, that this is something I'm excited about. I often tell you know people that, that you have to be the most excited person about your career or about your product or about your book or about your podcast because you can't expect other people yes. to be more excited than you. Thank you for telling me that. Sometimes I need to be reminded of that. You know, you sort of wait for people to say good job or I love it, but you should be the one that's really the proudest. It's like like you like your kids, you know, you got to be proudest of uh, of what you produce and what you put out there. Let's talk a little bit more about do over. Um Seth Godin loves the book. Seth has been on the show and he's very particular about what he likes. So this is a huge endorsement. He says this is the best career book ever written. Period. He says, I'm not even sure what book comes in second. This is practical, human touch, human touching, urgent, vulnerable, universal, actionable truth, all in a well-written, handy package. Go! Exclamation point. Wow. Yeah, we uh, we danced at the Acuff House when that came through. Oh, my through. goodness. Um, we certainly, that was, you know, just insane. Because you're right, he's... He has, I think, one of the most important voices in, in our space, um, and he doesn't use it casually. And so I, I, was, I was blown away by the gift of that and the kindness of that. I'd love to focus on the actionable truth part of his endorsement and, and get your, I guess, because we only have so much time on the podcast, what would you sure. say are the, the two greatest actionable truths from your book that you want listeners to know about? And, and tease us a little bit, because I want everyone to go out and buy this book. Sure. Well, I, I think, you know, the reason I write um, books like this is I believe two things. I believe you're capable of more than you think. And I believe it's going to take more work than you think. And if I can get you to believe the first part, the hope part, give you permission to dream to know that you get to do this, then I can talk to you about the second part. 
But the problem with books, you know, in my space are that some do a really good job with the first part. You get excited. I can do anything. And you're amped. And then there's nothing practical to actually do. And you feel like a failure. I have shelves of books that promise me some sort of better situation, but didn't have anything that was actionable for me to do. And I finished the book and thought, well, maybe it's me. You know, maybe everybody else who read this figured it out. And then there's some books that do the second part well. They go, here's all the practical, here's all the hard work, but you have no fuel of hope to push you through that. And they're boring and they're dry. And so I tried to marry those two ideas in do-over. And so the two most practical kind of, I think, most you know, important ideas are about skills and about relationships. Um, there's two exercises in the book that help you surface the skills you need for the job you want. And then there's an exercise about relationships that helps you understand the relationships you have in your life that can help you as you figure out what it is you want to do. Um, because most of us, when we sit down, I talked to a teacher the other day, he's been a teacher for 30 years and he has to start over. And he said, I don't have any transferable skills. And I said, Oh no, don't say that. That's not even a little true. And I started to spend a little time with him to help him unpack, look at all the skills you have for the future that you've spent three decades building. Here's how to transfer them to something new. Um, and then the other side, the relationships is we don't really know who we really know because networking is such a, like a gross kind of thing. Like we all recoil when we think about it <laughs> and it's not about networking. It's about relationships. It's about friendships. It's about, you know, connections. The reason I'm getting to talk to you, it came through relationship. It came through a friendship. Um, the reason I got to talk to James who connected us, connected you and I was because of a friendship with Brian Koppelman. James Altucher. Yes. And so those are the two most important exercises in the book, I think. And relationships take time. I know that there's a lot of eagerness to get from point A to point B, and sometimes that bridge is a is a real is a connection. Is it someone, uh, you know, a six degree of separation or something or other? Uh, but patience is is a big part of this too, right? Oh, one hundred percent. The internet's kind of taught us that relationships happen overnight. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think that everything else in our life is instant, why shouldn't my relationships be too? Why shouldn't my success be too? And so now I think that. It does take time and it does take um, patience. Um, you and I both have the same experience where people ask us to do things, but we don't know them. And there's, they're jumping intimacy levels. And they'll go, hey, I heard you had a podcast. I'd love you to tell all your, all your followers that you should you know, buy my product. And you go, hi, I, I've never met you. Right. Um, I don't know who you are. I don't know if you really care about people or if this is just you doing the whole like everybody on the Internet's an expert right now. Like they do one thing well and sell a $500 PDF. And you don't know if that person's that type of person. And so you don't have the relationship where if a friend who you'd known since 2007, to use James as another example, came to you and said, you should talk to John, that carries a different weight because it has the time proven worth of relationship. I'd like to talk about Dave Ramsey now. Okay. Uh, I know you worked alongside Dave Ramsey for years and in a couple of years ago you quit. Um, what, how, first of all, how did that relationship come about? Uh, I know that that was considered considerably one of your dream jobs or your dream job ever, but you walked away from it. So why? Why do that? And But more, I want to know kind of how that became a part of your career path. Uh, how did you guys connect? As Talking about relationships and connections, that's a pretty awesome relationship to have. Oh, yeah. That, that relationship fast-forwarded my career by 10 years easily. Um, and so it started in a really small, really funny way. I was writing a blog um, back in 2008, 
And one of his staff members um, read the blog and every Wednesday they have a speaker come up and speak to their team. And I got, they, they emailed me and said, Hey, we'd love you to come speak. And it was the second time I'd ever spoken professionally. Um, and I went up and it, it went well. And we started talking then about, Hey, what if you worked here, but the job just wasn't right. And so I said, ah, it's not in the right, it's not the right position. And then 2009, I came up and I did the same thing again. And 2010 did the same thing a third time. And that time they bought a copy of my first book for every staff member, which was the most books I'd ever sold in a single day. Um, and he, and we just had this great conversation and he said, you know, I'm trying to expand my brand. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to have this, this company disappear when I disappear. Like he has an expiration date. Just he like was it. looking for someone to pass the torch down to. Well, I would say probably the family members will, will grab the torch more so, but I was saying it was definitely a, I want to expand where we're able to reach and how we're able to reach. And he said, and I see something in you that I'd like to help grow. And, and so that's where I joined in 2010. And it was, it was like getting a PhD um, and building a brand and having a conversation with an audience. And it was an, it was like being in a greenhouse for entrepreneurs is how I've often described it. And so eventually it was really hard to spend that much time around an entrepreneurial culture and not want to go do that. Mm, um, and right. so after three years, I wanted to try the things I was teaching people. Um, I wanted to take the kind of risks I was writing about, it, you know, it, there's a great danger where you write a book daring people to take risks that you're not you're not taking yourself. Um, and as an author, I, I like to write from the trenches. And so Do Over is a trenches book. Um, you know, I, I went through a large career transition and there was, you know, it wasn't a good one or a bad one. It was just a big one. And so I think I think it comes through there where people have reacted to the book and said, it's like you're reading my diary. And it's because I first wrote mine. Um and so that was what that experience was. But it was, yeah, I learned a ton. Wow. Now, I like to transition over now to my so money questions. I ask a lot of my guests similar questions about money after Great. we kind of get over the uh, all of their exciting projects and, and um, books and all that cool stuff. But I guess if you had to boil it down, John, what would you say is your financial philosophy? Uh, my financial philosophy um, is, is be patient. Um, and be disciplined. Um, and th those are, those two things are not easy for me. Um, so I, I had a conversation with somebody today about rolling out a new product and I had to figure out how do I be disciplined with it? I, you know, what amount of money am I going to invest in it and how much would I need to, you know, to break even on it? How big is, is, is the project going to be? Um, and so I'm really trying to be disciplined with it. Um, and I think too, like playing the long term for me, um, there's a lot of shiny things that are available right now, um, in our culture and it's easy to want to try to grab them. Um, and so for me being really disciplined to go, okay, I'm going to build, that doesn't mean I don't take risks. Certainly, um, leaving my last job was a risk, but financially, how do I be really disciplined so that I can do a big risk? Not so that I can avoid risks, but so that when the time's right, I can say, okay, we've built a financial platform large enough for us to jump out from this great opportunity we had into a different opportunity. Um, that's kind of my philosophy. All right. Let's talk about your greatest lesson learned as a kid growing up, money lesson. How would you describe your childhood in terms of your exposure to money and financial literacy? I would say um, the greatest lesson was money is fun, but it's not everything. 
Um, sometimes I say money is a something that pretends to be in everything. Um, and I had a, a dad who was a pastor, so we didn't have tons of money, but I still felt like we had tons of life. Um, and so I think that's something that as I've, you know, gone about my own life, um, I think it's really easy for money to offer a promise it can't fulfill. Um, and I've worked with a lot of successful people that were overwhelmed by the success because they always thought it'd feel a certain way or solve a certain problem. And then they got it and they, they realized it didn't. And that money then comes in and goes, well, just a little more would. And then they go, oh, okay, okay. And then they chase that little more. And so I think learning early on that money is fun. It can do amazing things, but it's not everything that there are, you know, there are other things that matter. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Massachusetts. No way. Uh, so did I. Where? I lived in Ipswich, which is on the North Shore. Um, and then we moved to Hudson, which is like Hudson, Marlboro, Worcester area. <gasps> I was born in Worcester. How great. So oh did you grow gosh. up in Worcester? I grew – I so I was born in Worcester. At, the, at St. Vincent? My brother was born in St. Vincent. I was born in uh, Memorial Hospital. Yeah. My sister was born in St. Vincent. Oh, so my far. gosh. So I lived in Worcester until I was about – five or six and then we moved to Auburn and then Shrewsbury I went to high school in Shrewsbury I went to St. John's oh my gosh John Acuff we are like I know right this is this is making warming my heart I was a St. John's pioneer only sophomore to senior I got sent there after a a bad freshman year it was like oh that was always the threat it's like if you don't do well we're sending you to St. John's St. John's was our you know private school for all boys all boys had to wear sport coat so now, are you the most successful graduate of St. John's? No, I'm sure there's like a hedge fund manager out well, there. Well, that's, I mean, well. Or like an owner of subway chains. Like, no, I don't <laughs> think so. I've, I haven't had any interaction with my, my old high school. Mm. Um, and I always joke that I haven't spoken at my college. I speak at colleges all over the place, but I haven't spoken at my college. But I was on social suspension freshman year for a fire extinguisher incident on no. Halloween night. So I might still be secretly blacklisted. Uh-oh. Um, I'm not. I'm so not you were a troublemaker. Bit of yeah. a troublemaker. Yeah, troublemaker sounds glamorous. Risk taker. More, more, of, an, more of an idiot. Um, <laughs> yeah, troublemaker sounds like I had a cape. No, I, I was just an idiot, an old-fashioned idiot. Oh, man. Or just, a, you know, a risk taker in his youth. Exactly. Something like that. Um, well, that's that's great to know. I didn't know that. Um, well, I hate to transition to this question, but it's it can always be um, a fun twist. What would you say is your biggest financial failure? And, uh, and, and yeah. Dave Ramsey probably doesn't want to hear this, but, you know, share I have this. two um, that come to mind. One was really small. One was bigger. When I was in um, – no, I guess I graduated college. I was at my first job, and I was really undetailed, and I got hurt playing Frisbee golf. Not Frisbee golf. Nobody gets hurt playing that. Uh, ultimate Frisbee. I got hurt playing Ultimate Frisbee, and I went to the doctor – and the doctor sent the bill to my office, and I'm sure I threw it away or thought, like, healthcare works. The, the, your job just pays for everything. Mm-hmm. And I threw the bill away, and it was $81. And I didn't think about it until probably four years later when my wife and I were getting married, and she was like, your credit is horrible. And I was like, that's weird, you know? And we looked it up, and it had gone to collection. Um, And it was $81. Like I had the $81. I just was very undetailed and missed it. So that was my small mistake that hurt my credit for like seven years. Oh, jeez. The second larger one was I started a company with a friend and it wasn't a friend I knew well. And I I mean, you talk, I I mentioned patience and being disciplined earlier. That's because I haven't been and I'm trying to 
do that going forward. And he was the only one that had access to the money. Um, and so we had one client, which was this church my grandmother had attended for like 30 years. And, um, we were horrible at our company. Like I thought, oh, I'll just start an ad agency and start an ad agency. Exactly. I know. Exactly. How hard could that be? Versus I should have just said, I'll be a freelance copywriter and take small projects. But you know, when you're an idiot, you go big. And so it didn't work and we had to refund the client their money or what was left of it. And so I did, um, or I tried to, and my, my partner kind of strung me along for a while and then eventually sent them a check and the check bounced and he had Mm -hmm. spent all the money. And so the money was gone. And so my wife and I paid them back and we didn't have that amount of money. Like there was no like don't steal from a church fund that we had saved up. Um, and so that was those are probably the two biggest um, that come to mind. Wow. Well, I'll give you now an opportunity to flip it. Let's talk about your so money moment, something that you're really proud of that uh, that you would identify as your biggest financial win. Biggest financial win. Um, I think the biggest financial, hmm, my biggest financial win. Um, I think, you know what? It was paying off our car. We, we had a car that we bought when we first got married. Um, and I've had financial wins as far as like salary or like the book, book deals, that kind of thing, or like getting paid to speak. Like those are all awesome, amazing things. But I think the, the process of step-by-step payment by payment, being really deliberate to pay off our car early um, that we had purchased together and not in the smartest way. Like we were young and like, let's just buy a car. They sell them, you know, and let's get a five year. Five <laughs> we need year- one. Yeah, we need one. They have them, you know, um, I'd like to have one in my driveway. And so pulling together as my wife and I did to like as a team, that was one of our first big team things. And I think you know, I, the, the book Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey really helped us get on the same page and kind of send us down that path. So that was that's probably my biggest. I mean, there's been other exciting ones um, where it's it's been stuff that I, you know, like it's fun to think you get paid to be a public speaker. Like that's amazing. <laughs> you know, the, I, like that's that's yeah. so fun or that people will pay you to write a book like that's a dream come true. But I think the the one that I look back to is my wife and I working together. You know, a book is a wonderful vehicle to get you to, as I was listening to you say on the James Altucher show podcast that, you know, a book isn't in it of itself, in it of itself, a money making machine like thing, like unless you get a huge advance, but, or have the fortune of selling millions of copies and you make uh, residuals, but really it's a vehicle to get you other in opportunities, whether it's speaking or, um, you know, maybe a TV show, even rarer. But uh, you've done a really good job of that. What would you say? A lot of my listeners want to get on the speaking platform, on a speaking platform, a speaking circuit. They're experts, but they don't really have a brand or anything like that. What would you say is the first step? A book or just getting some kind of online? Yeah, um, I think I think an online presence is mm-hmm. the first. Um, I. I had this argument, and we're working on a public speaking class right now, uh, me and a friend, um, to kind of help people figure out how to do that. But I think the um, the thing I'd say is a, a social media platform first, because there's people out there that don't need to write a book. Um, somebody asked me that the other day, should everybody write a book? And I said, no, in the same way that not everybody should record an album. Like, not everybody should be a sculptor. Like, I would rather you take... Like a bad book isn't a good vehicle for other things. 
And the challenge is because of self-publishing, it's easier than ever to publish a book, which means it's harder than ever to have a good one because people think I don't need an editor. Like <laughs> I, I can self-publish and then they create really bad books. So when people say like, oh, it's an amazing business card, I think not, not unless it's good. Like it's a terrible business card if it's bad. If you go, I wrote a book and here's the set, it's 17 pages. Yeah, and, no, and no. I'm going to hand it out to clients. And That's not a book, that's a pamphlet. Exactly. And so like, I, so I would say I would much rather uh, somebody in the audience go, you know what, I'm going to build a social media platform, whatever, you know, that looks like. Um, and then from there, I'm going to work on creating an amazing book. Um, and, and not, you know, or amazing video series, like maybe what you're really good at isn't writing and, or maybe it is you work with a ghostwriter. There's some really talented ghostwriters, yes, yes. um, that, you know, help, or maybe, you know, maybe you write it together. There's a lot of great business books that are written by multiple people. I think there's a bunch of paths, but for me, the book isn't the first path. It might be an eventual path mm -hmm. if it helps you, but don't assume it'll help you if it's bad. If it's bad, it just hurts you. I agree. And these days, if you want to be self-published, or sorry, if you want to go the traditional publishing route, uh, you need to have ex an exist. You need to be someone. Not to say you have to be famous, but you need to have some sort of established identity online, followers, um, a platform essentially, so that you can then go and market the book to. Because the publishers are not equipped to really help you with uh, advertising and promotion as much as they once were years and years ago. Oh, that's the first question they're going to ask: is who's going to buy it? Right. And you know what? They're asking it. I've I've talked to a, a bunch of uh, people in the publishing industry, and they're finding that even people with a huge social media platform, it doesn't translate to book sales. Like the we oh, went yeah. through kind of you know a couple phases where there used to be the idea that like oh you're a YouTube star of course you'll sell a million books no you won't like you've created an audience that likes to watch sixty second funny clips why does that equate to an audience that wants to buy a three hundred page book that's not the same it's not the same thing and so it is about cultivating the right audience for the right conversation absolutely all right John what's your number one habit financial habit that helps keep your money where it needs to be and growing. Um, my number one, uh, not spending money I don't have, which sounds so counterintuitive, but you know, we, when I worked for Dave, got rid of our credit cards and, and so being really deliberate about spending with cash. Um, I've always wondered about that. So I, I, I know Dave's a big, uh, anti-credit card, um, advocates. How does that ultimately hurt you though? Or, or how does it factor in when you're trying to say, get a mortgage? Do you just well, we, should buy we, your homes with cash? We already we already have uh, like we have a mortgage now, so I can't I can't answer it for the next one. Um, what what they'll say, um, but like with our car, we bought our car with cash, mm -hmm. so we we saved that uh, saved up for that. But I would say like m bigger than just the credit versus cash, because like as a business traveler, I think there's you know like if you're responsible, like I don't you know I'm not so much of the ilk of like how dare you have a Southwest Rewards card like that, you're going to be bankrupt tomorrow. Um, I think there's a lot of my friends have that and love that and go, my wife got a companion pass. She can fly with me forever, you know, for the year, for free. Like, so I think you could argue like both sides of that. But for me, it's more about going, there's a thing I want. And just because I want it doesn't mean I can buy it. Um, and, you know, let it doesn't mean I can't buy it. Let me be deliberate about figuring out how we can get it or can be deliberate with it. And so same with my kids. Um, it's helping them understand like, yeah, just because you have the desire doesn't mean you have the means. Right. Um, well, and having credit is not just a, I mean, 
So credit cards essentially help you establish credit if you manage them wisely. But we know that having a credit profile is important when you're sometimes applying for a job, um, getting a, even a, renting an apartment, they'll want to check your credit. And if you don't have any credit history, that can work against you. So it's kind of a I, – I totally get it philosophically, you know, the sort of anti-credit debt – uh, but it, practically speaking, it can sometimes be important depending on what you need and want in your life. Yeah, and that was part of, I mean, part of uh, me leaving the company was that I'm not a financial expert guy. You know, like mm-hmm. all my books are career focused. The right. name of the building was Financial Peace Plaza. So eventually you have to go, okay, like if you're not writing about finance, are you in the right spot? You know, and so for me, that was part of the, part of the conversation. All right. Are you ready for some so money fill in the blanks? Sure. Let's do it. <laughs> if I won a million dollars tomorrow, the first thing I would do is? Uh, if I won a million dollars, the first thing I would do is pay off my house. Nice. Uh, the one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is? An assistant. Nice. I'm, I just hired one as well. Full time. Awesome. I can't wait. Whoa, full time. I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm oh, all yeah. grows up. Working my way up. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, payroll and everything. Um, the My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on, perhaps too much, is? Books. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is? Um, it's okay to make a lot of it. It is. It is. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because? Um... My church and uh, Thistle Farms. Um, What's my that? Church, my, well, my church, because as a person of faith, I believe we're called to do that. And then Thistle Farms is this organization in Nashville that helps get women off the streets. And they make um, organic candles and lotions. And, and it's this from kind of off the street moment. It's a two-year residential program. And they have jobs that they create. And it's all locally sourced. And it's just really, really amazing, this endeavor. Um, and so I love, I love giving money there. Wonderful. Wonderful. I love that. And John, last but not least, I'm John Acuff and I'm so money because. I'm doing it. I took a big risk, 18 months and it's working. It is. It is. Everyone check out, run as a go, as Seth Godin says, buy, do over, rescue Monday, reinvent your work and never get stuck. I like this book so much. I'm going to give one away for free to my listeners. Um, so just hop over to somoneypodcast.com, learn how you can win a book. Uh, John, thank you so much. Congratulations. Well, thanks for having me and hooray for Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know I, can't, I can't believe that. That's so sweet. Small world. Yep. That is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about John, check out his website, acuff, A-C-U-F-F dot M-E dot me. You can also follow him on Twitter at John Acuff. We've got all this information at somoneypodcast.com. And there, if you'd like to win a copy of his book, do check out his post on somoneypodcast.com. Also there are the transcript and comments from this episode and all episodes. I'll be putting directions as to how to qualify to win a copy of his book. And I want to hear from you at somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh and there you can ask me whatever is 
on your money mind, and I take the weekends to respond to listeners' questions. And if you'd like a free 15-minute money session with me, just hop onto iTunes and leave a review for this show. Every Saturday, I pick one new reviewer to receive a free 15-minute money blitz with me. So if you want to get connected, that is one way to hopefully qualify. Hope to hear from you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to my guest, John Acoff, and hope the rest of your day is so money. Money.